Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. Today, a hard look at our love affair with digital distraction. Did you hear the one about the woman in Australia? She was so absorbed by her Facebook app that she stepped right off of a pier. When she was fished out of the water, she was still clutching her phone. It's a true story. I laughed when I heard about it. But the truth is, many of us have a hard time taking a break from our digital lives, and it's having all kinds of consequences, particularly for our kids. This is the first generation of middle schoolers to grow up thinking it's too intense or awkward to call somebody and talk. Catherine Steiner Adair is a school consultant and a clinical psychologist who's worked throughout the United States and in Israel. She's also the author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. The book was included in the Wall Street Journal's top 10 list of nonfiction books for 2013. In the book, Steiner Adair talks about how families or kids that used to hang around and talk with one another now retreat to their separate devices. They play games, they text, they check Twitter, they do everything but relate to one another. We thought Catherine might be a good person to check in with as the new year gets underway. And as it gets underway, we all have the impulse to make a resolution or two about how we live our lives. Catherine Steiner Adair is speaking with us from her office in Newton, Massachusetts. Catherine, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you so much. Now, I understand from your book that your interest in this topic arose from things you started hearing from parents and kids in your private practice and also that you were hearing from schools that you worked with. Can you give us some examples of what in particular caught your attention? Oh, several things caught my attention. What I started to notice with schools is I would get phone calls from heads of schools, and they'd all have a pattern to them. They all started to sound very familiar, and here's how it went. Hi, Catherine. Uh, we need some help. We've got a really nice kid from really a really nice family, but they are in such serious trouble, like police trouble, like lawyer trouble. And what these situations always were, were kids being kids, but playing in a very different sandbox, playing with smartphones, playing on YouTube. And unfortunately, these can be wonderful tools, but for young people, very powerful tools that when misused can get them into some very serious trouble. So that was, you know, what I was hearing from schools. Uh, Then as a therapist, what I'm became very aware of is that when we start to text, instead of talking to one another, we lose one of our most essential human ways of connection, which is to listen to each other in tone of voice. And I saw so quickly how when people were upset or angry, texting would escalate drama so much worse than anything somebody would say to somebody. And not even when people were in a messy situation, but it's so hard to understand the meaning of something when it's just a text. So it would crack me up. It still cracks me up. People come to therapy, and they'll explain the situation they're in, and then they'll hold their iPhone in front of me and ask me, so what do you think this means? And it'll be a word like sorry. (laughs) And I'm supposed to know, know, is it snarky sorry? Is it, oh my God, I'm so sorry? Or is it sorry? You know, we don't know because we're texting. And so this is the first generation of middle schoolers to grow up thinking it's too intense or awkward to call somebody and talk and schmooze. And, you know, that used to be the hallmark of being a teenager. You'd get your phone and you'd talk for hours. But 
that's no longer the case. And there are some real social consequences to that. I have to admit that as a parent of a one-year-old, your book caused me a lot of anxiety. So far, I think I'm doing pretty okay as a mother, but I admit that occasionally I have taken refuge in social media when my child is playing with a toy or yeah. earlier when I was nursing. Yeah. Is it really so bad if I have my phone handy when he's like eating and he's got a spoon in one hand over his head and the other one he's, you know, stuffing his face with avocado? You know, <laughs> is it really so bad? We don't know. That's the problem. We, we don't really know how bad it is. I, you know, is it really so bad? No. Is it that much different from taking a, a phone call when your phone was attached to a wall? You know, we all would. I certainly took calls when my kids were in their high chairs. But what is bad is that it's so addictive in a very different way. When your phone rings, it feels important. When your cell phone rings or pings or vibrates, it feels urgent. And there's something about this technology that taps into our brains and makes us think everything, everything, everything is important and needs to be responded to. And what happens is we turn our attention away too often, too quickly, too easily. So that's one thing. And the risks of that are quite real. We've seen a spike in really preventable accidents with parents or caretakers of toddlers because you cannot watch a child, especially one who's crawling and running around, with your eyes on a screen, you, it feels like you can multitask, but you really can't. So that's one serious thing. But the other thing is that babies and toddlers develop in so many essential ways in the first three years of life. It is staggering when you think about what that little brain has to do in those first three years of life. And the best way for them to grow and develop is for you to be there interacting with them while they're eating, while you're cooking, when they're in the high chair. And they can tell when you are tuned into them or not tuned into them. And one of the things I heard from kids who could speak, you know, beginning at two or three, all the way up to 30, is that kids are really frustrated with having their parents' attention and vying for their parents' attention. So, you know, I think you have to be pretty mindful about what are the times you're going to talk and coo and play and interact and read and dance in front of your child and and when you're going to be preoccupied with your screen time. Well, let's take the example of my child again. Say he's a little bit older, maybe five or eight. Mm -hmm. Can he spend time on an educational game on my future iPad? I don't have one now. <laughs> While I do the dishes? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, 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 here, here are the things you want to look at. First of all, is it really educational or is it edutainment? And it also has to do a lot with your child's wiring. Because we certainly know out of the research out of Korea and other parts of the country that are much more tech-dependent or and have had technology as part of their family life more than we have, that children as young as 3, 4, and 5 can become addicted to iPads and, and games. So you really want to pay attention to your your child's wiring how they transition on and off an iPad. Can they give it to you when their time is up? Do they have a total meltdown and become aggressive or fussy or cranky or nasty when you take it away? And you really, the, the first thing you want to teach your child is how to approach and how to get off of an iPad or a handheld device and make sure they are in, able to self-regulate. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of really good things for kids to do the thing you have to think about is how often, how much, and what they're not doing 
when they are on an iPad. I mean, I think it's better for them to be playing a really great game on an iPad at five than watching bad stuff on a TV set. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about how you're using them and what the content is and, and making sure that at five your child is doing really what kids need to do most of all, which is playing in real life and being read to and having friendships and relationships One uh, idea in your argument that was very striking was that all of these developmental concerns aside, we as parents really miss out on on our children's lives, on their childhood when we plug them in or when we ourselves are plugged in. Yes. And you hear that sense of loss in some of the uh, conversations that you describe that you've had with grownups. Absolutely. I mean, there's a sense of loss in children that's profound and there's a sense of loss in grownups that's profound. You know, it, we talk a lot in, in Judaism about the importance of family and making family primary. And technology, in many ways, is diluting the primacy of family because we behave in ways that just 10 years ago were unimaginably so rude. We'll take a call at the table. We'll be in a car and make an entire car full of people listen to half a conversation. And, you know, we talk about, in Judaism, self-control and and overcoming anger and People get very dysregulated often on their cell phones and expose other people to things that are really not for the company of other people. So I think that you have to be very mindful about how you use technology and whether you use it to strengthen your family connections or whether, in fact, it's diluting your family connections. To your mind, is there any answer in particular that Judaism uh, offers on how to deal with these challenges? Oh sure, um, I'm 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 actually thinking a lot about that. I'll do some writing about that soon. But I think so many of the tenets of Judaism can be really wonderful guidelines. You know, when you're on social networking sites where the the name of the game basically is to kind of humiliate other people, I think you know some of our Jewish values can help us really think about that. Think about bringing loving-kindness into how you behave online is a pretty powerful thing for kids and a very hard thing. Mm-hmm. You know, who is mighty? He who masters control over himself. And the whole experience of being online so often is one of a lack of self-control because speed and uh, rapidity and sort of shock and awe um, uh, is so much of the fun for kids, but that fun can very quickly tip into some pretty nasty stuff and you know, concepts like put no one to shame, and you will not be put to shame yourself. Well, no put-downs. That's how we talk about it with kids. But there sure is a lot of shaming and humiliating behavior that goes on online, even unintentionally when parents brag about their children or post photos of their teenagers without their kids' permission. I mean, there are a lot of ways in which families really need to talk about what is our family's values for responsible use, these are there are so many wonderful ways in which uh, Jewish principles can help us get better control over who we are and how we behave with our smartphones, with our computers, with Instagram, with Snapchat, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. As kids get older, the concern begins to be more how various digital devices are delivering. Uh, sexual or violent content to them mm-hmm. long before really they're ready intellectually to process that material. Yep. What do you see with kids that age? 
Well, I see that um, many kids are not getting really helpful, honest, and comprehensive conversations at home or school about healthy relationships and healthy sexuality. And kids are certainly getting a very new kind of sex ed, if you will, on YouTube and online and turning to a lot of pornography at 12 or 13 that is very sadistic and misogynistic and confusing, frankly, to kids. When I was doing focus groups, I interviewed a 1,000 kids between the ages of 4 and 18, and a lot of middle schoolers and some high schoolers, too, would ask me things like, Dr. Steiner, Adair, could you please explain why? Why would a woman want to be choked while having intercourse? And they're learning that online. And what's so tragic is that um, the sort of sexual vulgarity and misogynistic content that's always been out there now is readily available to kids whether they want it or not. So, for instance, you know, one adorable little 11-year-old boy was Googling his vocabulary homework and being the smart, you know, little kid he was, he decided he wanted to look up some other words that he heard and he used and he pretended to know but really didn't know and he Googled the word pornography and got stuck Aww. in a very ugly uh, YouTube video and then proceeded to cry and have anxiety for quite a few days. So we have to really talk much more openly and honestly with our kids about sexuality, about what healthy sexuality is, about pacing yourself, about unintended consequences of looking at porn and really have conversations that many of us might not have had with our own parents, uh, which is why I scripted them in the book, you know, <laughs> how to talk to your kids about <laughs> friends with benefits. Technology has broken down the barriers between the adult world and the world of children, and therefore we have to work harder to make sure our children know what we think is important and what our values are, and really how to teach them how not to go places that can hurt them, even though they seem very curious and exciting and grown up and sexy or adultified. Let's fast forward to high school. Now, uh, you talk a lot in your book about the ways in which kids in high school, teenagers, are are particularly susceptible to abusing or being abused by the rapid-fire social exchanges that go on at that age. Can you share an example with us of the kinds of things that are going on now among kids in high school and even uh, younger that uh, involve this new digital age? Oh, well, I'll draw on an example from the book. Um, yeah, very typical, really nice bunch of boys, really nice kids. They're, one of their buddies was rejected by a girl. And, you know, they had his back and they were going to do what kids have done for ages. You know, they they made a song. And these were smart boys, so they did a really, really crafty, clever takeoff on a song by Eminem, which had very crass, very vulgar language. And the only difference is that instead of making the song on their guitar and hanging out after school and playing it amongst themselves, they recorded it on GarageBand named the girl, named her school, and without a moment's consideration or thought that what they were doing was harmful or could be seen as malicious or as uh, ruining somebody's reputation. 
And as far as they were concerned, they were just having fun and doing something their buddy would feel really, you know, happy to hear and make him feel better about himself. Well, when the dad of the girl heard this song as it traveled very quickly in the school community, clearly this was not their reaction, nor was it the reaction of the principal of the schools or the girl herself, to be sure, or her friends. And so, you know, kids' computers were subpoenaed and there was threats of legal action and stuff, none of which happened, but could easily have if the principal's hadn't handled it as well as they did. In other communities, things like this have led to kids being expelled or suspended or um, withdrawing from schools. I mean, you know, so that kind of stuff, in a way, is just the current iteration of kids being kids. But the difference is that they have access to this technology that allows them to have an impact that is far greater than they understand so often in the moment. Well, what can we do to stop any of this? Uh, We have to do far more work in educating children with what we call in the field social-emotional intelligence, SEL. What social-emotional learning is, is really managing, first and foremost, understanding your feelings, managing your feelings, managing your own reactivity, teaching mindfulness, teaching... Uh, kids the ability to to really be thoughtful and push their own pause button, know not to text back quickly or, um, you know, push send or forward on something ugly or inappropriate or a sexting photo, and then teaching kids the ability to really relate better and think much more thoughtfully about how they're communicating both online and offline and really helping them understand a lot of the gender code messages that are equally harmful to boys and girls. But schools have to make it safe for kids to be able to talk about that and be able to use the language they use online and really talk honestly without repercussions and punishment about some of the stuff they're struggling with online. And the thing that's so interesting is that as more and more education flips if you will, to screens, and content is derived from primary sources, it makes it all that more important that schools teach kids how to relate well, how to have good character, how to manage all this social and psychological dynamics of technology it seems like so many of these lessons, though, are ones that uh, adults can can and I would say should also uh, adopt. I mean, in terms of sort of <laughs> powering down and really being present and listening. I've often been in conversations with people, and they'll get a phone call, or you know, they'll be checking their texts while they're talking to you, and they're just not present at all in the conversation. It's just ultimately so incredibly disrespectful. You're absolutely right. What kids say over and over and over again is that the adults are such hypocrites, and they're right. They're right. So first and foremost, families and parents have to remember that you are the ultimate role model in real life for your child. Families really need to be very clear about what the parameters are, whether you're taking a text Shabbat or... uh, you know, you, you have a no device at the table rule and then you maintain it. 
And again, with little kids, it's so hard because it seems innocuous, or it seems harmless to text while you're nursing or you're feeding a baby. But, you know, that that time is so loaded. There's so much going on, when, especially when you're, you're feeding an infant. It's the relationship that comes with the nourishment that is so essential. And if your eyes are distracted... If you're texting, if you're talking in an earpiece and you're not cooing at that baby and looking at that baby and holding that baby with the intention of loving kindness and your full focus, your baby's not going to get the kind of nourishment it needs. And actually, you're not either. There's this divine chemistry about taking care of babies that actually teaches us how to parent. It's a reciprocal process. And if you're distracted from your child, your own brain and your wiring and your heart and your little soul and psyche is not going to be changed and impacted and influenced by your child in the way your child needs you to be changed in the process of parenting. So we really need to just be more mindful and thoughtful and have better self-control. We can do this. It's nothing we can't do. It's absolutely nothing we can't do. We just have to sort of push the pause button now and rethink, are we being our best selves with these tools? And are we using this technology to strengthen our family relationships and to serve our families well? We can, we can do it. Catherine Steiner Adair, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Catherine Steiner Adair is the author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. She speaks regularly on this topic to audiences of all kinds, and you can find out more information about it on our website, tabletmag.com. We'd love your thoughts on our podcast. Post a comment on our website, but please, and not while driving or before your kids are in bed. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Ivry. Thank you so much for listening, and please do come back next time.